Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Stéphane Serafin, a law professor at the University of Ottawa, who in April wrote an essay entitled How Ideological Coups Happen for a popular U.S. website about his experiences on today's highly charged Canadian university campus. Stéphane, as we will discuss, was subject to student complaints, including a human rights complaint, for how he covered Indigenous issues in his first-year property law course. I'm grateful to speak with him about his experience and what he thinks it tells us about the state of the university campus in Canada. Stefan, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. And thanks for having me, Sean. Let's start with a biographical question. When did you start at the University of Ottawa? What do you teach? And what are your broader research interests? So I began teaching at the University of Ottawa back in 2019. So not that long ago, all things considered. Long enough, apparently, to see things, you know, sort of change, as we'll get into. But uh, yeah, so my primary research interests are basically, they cover what's uh, included in the mandatory first-year curriculum in basically all the Canadian law schools. So I'm interested in contracts, I'm interested in property law, I've taught both of those courses. Uh, I also have an interest in uh, legal theory, so I've taught a course on that uh, twice, now. And I also teach uh, business organizations, so the corporate law, basically. And uh, as well, I'll be teaching a secure transactions class this year. So generally, private law interests, but also legal theory, I suppose. Let me ask a follow-up question, Stefan, about your worldview and perspective. Uh, We've not met before, but I follow you on Twitter. You don't seem to fit neatly into our typical ideological categories. My sense is that you're something of a traditionalist, who's a bit skeptical of today's hyperliberalism, and the upshot is that you don't quite fit on the left or the right. Is that interpretation correct? If so, to what do you attribute your somewhat heterodox worldview? So the way I like to put this when I uh, bring up my worldview with people is I'm, I'm, I'm a francophone. And that like, kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, accounts for my worldview or at least the, the the main themes of my worldview. So as you, I think you're right to say that I, I'm somebody who considers myself a traditionalist. A lot of my research takes on an explicitly comparative angle. I'm I'm a francophone living in Ontario. I grew up in Ontario, actually, so I'm a Franco-Ontarian. And so I do a lot of work on comparative common law, civil law topics. I have a lot of interest and respect for differing traditions, differing ways of looking at the world. Sometimes, you know, they're not necessarily better or worse than each other, than the others, Sometimes they are, but usually they're just different, right? The common law has a way of looking at things. The civil law has a way of looking at things. And it's a bit 
I think it's a, it's a view that I, I apply more broadly. So, you know, Francophone culture has a certain way of looking at things. The Anglophone culture of the rest of the country has a certain way of looking at things. Not necessarily better than one another, but different. And this, I think, accounts for a lot of sort of my, my broader political worldview. But yeah, I, I wouldn't describe myself as somebody who is, you know, neatly on the right or the left. In fact, on if you were to focus on economic issues, I would probably fit more neatly within a, a center-left classification, even if my respect for tradition probably puts me on the, the other side, if you will, on social matters. That's great context for our conversation today. Um, let's come to your experience. As you outlined in your essay, in 2021, you were notified by the law school's vice dean that some students had complained because you would challenge them a bit about how Canada's system of Indigenous property rights were inherently racist and colonial. This led to something of a human rights process and considerable stress and, and burden for you and your family. You want to describe the circumstances for listeners and why, as you put it in the essay, you ultimately weren't surprised by the complaints. So to start with the complaint first, so just to be clear, it wasn't the indigenous property rights per se that was the problem. I mean, I didn't discuss, for example, the Indian Act. I would have views on the Indian Act uh, that probably would not be actually that controversial. But the subject matter that was canvassed in my class was simply, you know, the Crown's affirmation of sovereignty, which is a perennial topic, I think, in activist discourse nowadays. And it's it features in the first-year property law class for one very simple reason, which is that the Crown's affirmation of sovereignty in the sort of common law way of understanding things is historically considered the root of everyone else's property interest. So the Crown affirms sovereignty over Canada, everyone else gets their interest in the land, their title to the land derived from the crown after that. So this was the only part of the class that was even remotely controversial, if I'm being honest. Uh, the rest is rather dry. And I got into trouble, uh, essentially, I think, because I uh, covered the topic in a re relatively straightforward manner. So I was trying to, I presented a number of cases, cases that uh, older cases, newer cases, so the 2014 decision from the Supreme Court in Silkwoten, was one of the cases I assigned. I presented them, you know, in a relatively straightforward way. Here's what the law is. Here's what it says. And immediately, I got pushed back by a few students who insisted during the classroom uh, discussion that I uh, acknowledge that these decisions are inherently racist and colonialist, which I wouldn't do. <laughs> and this was how I got myself into trouble. I told them, you know, this is one way of looking at things to say that they're racist and colonialist, sure, okay. Uh, what does that mean? Depends on the definition of the, the those terms that you're employing, and also what what are the implications that derive from that. You're looking at this through one particular theoretical lens. There are others, and I'm not just going to accept that qualification in a straightforward way. And we danced around for like almost an hour actually on this, where they kept coming back to this idea that it's colonialist and racist. And yeah, so because I ultimately, it turns out uh, when the complaint was finally filed, that this was actually the substance of the complaint because I had told them that this was one perspective among many and I refused to acknowledge that it was racist and colonialist while well, they suggested that I had essentially engaged in discrimination. So like I said, it, like you suggested, it wasn't surprising to me. I think I've mentioned this in, in the article, actually, it wasn't surprising to me at all. Uh, because of the broader sort of environment on campus, especially in 
starting in the summer of 2020, after the pandemic started, after the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., a lot of these things had a, a very marked influence on the uh, climate on campus. So students afterwards started uh, sending in petitions, asking the school to take measures to address what they perceived to be systemic racism. And they would make demands like, we want mandatory anti-racism training for all the faculty, repeat mandatory anti-racism training, so not just once. And what I, they also wanted to implement what I would call a, what I call a snitch line, so anonymous complaints process for, against students and faculty members who said things that they, they didn't like. So this, this sort of started in the summer of 2020. More pointedly for me, in my particular uh, university, in my particular campus, uh, there was an incident where an adjunct professor used the N-word during a, la- a lecture. It's actually it's a French language class, which so this was a French language lecture, and she used it in a context of like describing taboo language. So apparently it was relevant to the, the classroom discussion. And because she used the actual word... Uh, it caused a huge meltdown. Uh, people may remember this. The uh, Quebec Premier even weighed in on this controversy. So, given this context and a couple of other things that were going on, you know, I wasn't surprised. I I had thought that I could still get away with teaching the the material, such as why I went ahead and did it. I actually had some some second thoughts about doing it before I even taught the class. But I said, you know what, it can't be that bad. Turns out, you know. My first instinct was correct, um, and so I, I landed myself in trouble <laughs> because of that. We'll come back to the broader context and the kind of changing environment, but let's just stick on the complaints and the issues around it for a minute, if that's okay. You mentioned in the essay that you were in contact with your faculty union. What was its reaction? It seems to me that there's a reasonable likelihood that faculty union staff were probably sympathetic with the students on the issue, but were they still prepared to represent you and your interests as a, a, a paying member? So I have to say that my union was very good on this issue, but I mean, moving forward, I don't know if that's going to be the case. A lot of it depends on the kind of personalities that are involved. Uh, and there's a, on my campus at least, there's a marked divide between the Francophone and the Anglophone faculty on this issue. So the Francophones tend to be more, you know, at least sympathetic to the position that I'm defending here. Uh, the Anglophones tend to be more sympathetic to the students, if you will, to the point that, like for the adjunct in that particular case, you know, it didn't matter that this is a person who has no job security whatsoever or nearly none. Uh, we'll throw her to the wolves because she happened to say a word, right? Uh, which was, frankly, it's, it still bothers me quite a bit, actually, that people think that's this way. So in, in my case, at least, the union was ready to take this up. The reaction was quite positive. But moving forward, depending on who happens to be elected to the governing body, who happens to be the grievance officer at the time... This may not be the, th- the case moving forward, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to hang my hat on the union to protect me in a case like this. That's for sure. Did any faculty contact you one way or another? I, I-, I asked because one of the striking aspects of the recent firing of Princeton professor Josh Katz, who was a highly regarded classicist, is that virtually none of his former colleagues contacted him. He was persona non grata, and was that your experience? Well, when I started going public with this, I can say that the only time I've ever had uh, any sort of 
colleagues who uh, interacted with me on this to kind of tell me, no, I disagree with you, was when I, I started bringing this up in actual faculty meetings afterwards. Because there were things that were being pushed in the faculty meetings afterwards. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to have any of this anymore. So they would push back during the faculty meetings and a couple of email exchanges afterwards. But like, for example, when I published this piece, I have heard nothing from anyone except for other profs who have been supportive. So the people who are supportive have written to me, nothing at all from anyone else. With the pandemic, it's been kind of hard to be kind of interacting with other professors. We don't go into the the office that often. And there's people I haven't seen in years, but no one really contacts me anyway. And I, I, I get this impression that I have the cold shoulder, at least in, in a lot of quarters, at least among uh, the people who, who uh, hold the opposite view, I guess, uh, to me on this. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Well, you were ultimately protected by academic freedom. This past year, you dropped Indigenous issues from your property law course. And in the coming year, you've opted to stop teaching first-year courses altogether. Why? Why do you feel like you can no longer teach first-year law students? So, okay, the way the complaint ultimately played out, it was filed, the way I understand it, it was filed with the Human Rights Office. The Human Rights Office refused it because it was filed anonymously. So going back to what the students were demanding about anonymous complaints process, this seems to matter. So the Human Rights Office didn't take it up. It ended up being taken on by the dean personally. And after like two weeks or something of investigation, I don't know what he actually did, he eventually dismissed it. Saying you think he, uh, I, we're opting not to proceed at this time, right? So at no point, I was ultimately not disciplined or anything of the sort for doing this. But at no point was I assured that there would be no repercussions. In theory, I suppose that complaint could come back against me at some point in the future, right? In the cat's file, I mean, I don't know the full particulars of that case, but the way it looks to the public based on what happened, right? It looks like they brought back a complaint that had been dealt with as a sort of pretext to, you know, deal with his views on these sorts of issues. So I can't take any chances from that perspective. I'm theoretically allowed to speak out, which I do, but in terms of including classroom content that students might find offensive in the classroom setting, you know, that's running a risk at this point. It's creating a possibility of, of more ammunition, I guess, against me. And so I'd rather avoid that, especially for, for the Indigenous content, which, to your point about the uh, first-year classes, yeah, now there's a move to make that, uh, that's been formally approved at least, to include Indigenous content in all the first-year classes, mandatory, or at least strongly encouraging faculty to do it with a view of making it mandatory two years down the road. You, you argue in the essay that your experience is far from aberrant, that between 2014, when you graduated a student from the same university, and 2019, when you returned as a professor, something changed in its intellectual and cultural life. What happened, and what do you think was its cause? It's quite interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that, that played into this. 
One of them was, I think, if I'm being honest, the election of Donald Trump in the U.S. I think a lot of people on campus, really, you know, they were always left-leaning for the most part. Like, could I identify any real conservatives at my law faculty? Maybe one or two, you know. Most of them were center-left or leftist or even radically leftist. But the the sort of, like, intolerance to opposite viewpoints uh, or to certain other ways of looking at things. Now, we have our perspective on issues and everything else is incorrect and actually, like, racist, sexist, colonialist, etc. really comes out, I think, to me after 2016 uh, because of that. I mean, there's other issues, too. So I mentioned in the, in the piece, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Uh, one of the things that the commission recommended was the decolonization. I don't even think they called it decolonization. It was uh, incorporating indigenous legal perspectives into law schools, right? So that that also feeds into this, not because that's actually a bad thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing to incorporate indigenous legal traditions into the law school curriculum, but there's a question of how it's done. And with that climate of, you know, we need to push back against these right-wing reactionaries or people who are perceived to be right-wing reactionaries and so dissent can't be tolerated and people who are already quite, you know, leftist in their way of thinking of things or in a particular way into social justice type agenda, uh, the way that those recommendations are going to get implemented is is going to follow a certain pattern. I mean, there's other there's a bunch of other causes, I think, but it, it all kind of brews into a perfect storm. In, in the essay, you argue that it's in your interest to be, quote, as public as possible about the current situation. Help me and our listeners understand this point. Why did you choose to come public with, with your experience? Well, the easiest thing for me to do would have been to just be quiet completely. Like I could have let this complaint pass and hope that nobody picked up on it and just quietly changed my way of doing things. The problem with that I mean, there's a lot of people who do this. Perhaps that's the wiser course of action. The problem I saw was that at the way things were going, that would not be, that was not a wise choice on my part, or at least it's not a choice I could live with because it would require me to stay silent when more and more extreme sorts of positions were being uh, normalized as not only like the default view, but the only possible way of looking at a certain set of issues. So if I chose to speak up, and I did, you know, I chose to start speaking up during faculty meetings, for example, where I'm often really like the only person who's going to object to any of this. Probably there are others who agree with me or at least are, are more sympathetic to my view, but they don't say anything. So I'm the person who actually says anything whatsoever to push back on. For example, um, there was a proposal to create a mandatory anti-black racism class at one point. You know, these are things I push back on when they're floated in, in committees. And if I'm going to do that, then I better be public about it because any sort of retaliation then that is made against me is going to look kind of like in the Joshua's cat situation. I guess it didn't help him, but uh, at least at the very least, right, the impression that it is retaliating against me for expressing my views, which I'm formally allowed to do. The collective agreement protects my academic freedom and my right to express these sorts of opinions. So I might as well be, if I'm going to go for it, I might as well do it in public so that, you know, the, the way they can retaliate against me is, is limited, I guess. You mentioned earlier the reaction to your essay. I'll just ask you to, to elaborate. Was it as you expected? Was it bigger? Was it smaller? Why don't you tell listeners a bit about the response that you've received so far? I was 
a bit shocked. I mean, the the, the platform that uh, Wesley Wesley Yang gave me uh, it's it's quite a popular sort of platform. So that that he actually asked me to write this in the first place, I was kind of shocked. You know, we interacted a bit on Twitter or whatever, and he's like, "Hey, you want to write this? Uh, you can do it anonymously." I'm like, "No, no, I'll do it." Again, I'm going to come out in public if I'm going to do this, because it actually gives me more protection if I'm speaking out internally anyway. But yeah, no, the reaction that kind of surprised me still apparently it had something like 10,000 views on the first day. So widely shared. That was surprising enough. What did surprise me, honestly, was that there was complete radio silence. Like the, the radio silence, I did not get anybody who communicated with me to say, you know, I disagree with you, but the only people who contacted me were professors at other universities, professors at my universities, people in sort of like para-academic disciplines who are like, good on you for writing this. We support you. This is a brave thing to do. No one is, you know, trying to reach out to me to have some kind of dialogue. Probably they they're, they don't want that. They probably think that I, I, I've done something probably terrible. I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea what the reaction is. And that's probably been the most surprising thing to me because... We're supposed to be able to, I think, discuss these issues. And the fact that there's no dialogue happening whatsoever, just in reaction to, to that piece, is further confirmation of the kind of uh, climate that exists within the academy. Your essay ends somewhat pessimistically. Let me just ask you, do you, do you anticipate that things will continue to move in the direction that you've outlined here and, and in your essay? Or is there reason for hope? Are there signs that students and faculty may be growing tired of this form of sanctioned speech. Well, I know the students are, and this is part of the reason why I'm speaking up. Every now and then, before I even started speaking up publicly, I guess some students got the sense that I was not fully on board with this stuff. And they would come up to me to talk to me after class. And, you know, one student said, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm comfortable airing my views in your class because you've made this a safe space for me. And he used the safe space language. But the guy, the guy was, you know, identified as a Christian. Right, he's expressing he's expressing views that are outside of what I think would be the mainstream student view right now, and for him to say that to me suggested that there, there's kind of a problem. Uh, so the students, at least a subset of them, are definitely kind of had enough. Although, right for them, they're hoping to get through their law school education, get their law degree, and move on. So, is it really something that they're going to stand up to? Not necessarily. And this is kind of the bigger problem, I think. This is why I'm, I'm less optimistic on the whole. Even if there's faculty members who are opposing this, they're, they're not probably going to say anything. A lot of them are usually older. Right? The fact that I'm a young guy who's objecting to this is kind of odd. A lot of them are older. They're just probably waiting to retire to cash their pensions or whatever and move on. Institutionally. So if there's broader social forces that are beginning to push back on this, there's little going on inside the institution that encourages or that that's encouraging from my perspective that suggests that there's something that's going to change. In fact, all the incentives are in the opposite direction. You know, the government funding agencies in Canada that fund, but most of the research happening in Canada are increasingly making diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, that, that trifecta, uh, and it's a requirement of funding applications, Right? These are all these sorts of external incentives that on top of the pressures that are already there from certain student groups, uh, just adding on to the, um, the reasons for the university to follow this sort of approach. Let me ask you a penultimate question. It's now been over a year, I guess, since this incident, and you've had plenty of time to think about it. I think you mentioned 
before we got started, you've even gone back and rewatched the lecture and the exchange because it was recorded via via Zoom. One of the consequences of pandemic uh, instruction. Do you have any regrets? Yeah, actually, I do. My one regret was that I waited till something happened to me to speak up about this. So when that uh, the adjunct was being attacked for having said the N-word, there were letters going around. And I had actually signed on to one of these letters uh, like in support of her, that one that never got published because the, the main authors kind of retracted after the pushback. Uh, at that point, I just said, fine, maybe this is for the best. I'll just stay quiet. In retrospect, I should have pushed back. I should have publicly taken a stand to support her. So my one regret actually is that I, I didn't speak up earlier. And my final question is, in light of your experience and everything we've talked about today, do you still aspire to a future in the world of academia? You know, is your uh, vocation still on a university campus? That's a very complicated question. The answer is yes, but only if it can be what it's supposed to be, which is kind of why I don't have any regrets. Because from my perspective, if things keep going the way they, they are, if things don't improve, then really the, the vocation isn't there anyway. So I might as well be doing something else. I would much prefer to pursue this, to keep going, to publish, to teach. But if, if I have to essentially swallow this ideology and be expected to keep quiet whenever something happens and some sort of excess reaction happens to something, then, you know, the vocation's already gone. There's no point. Well, with that, Stefan Serafin, I want to applaud you for making the decision to, to tell your story in the essay, How Ideological Coups Happen. Uh, as you mentioned, listeners can find it at Wesley Yang's personal Substack. And I'd encourage them to read it. And I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues to, to, to talk a bit about your experience and what it may tell us about the current state of affairs on university campuses. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.